0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the first UVC podcast episode that we're recording in 2024. Happy New Year to everyone. I'm David, and I'm joined by Andreas as usual. Today we have Himal with us from White Star Capital. White Star Capital is a global investment platform with 1.5 billion dollars in AUM, housing VC, digital asset, and now debt-led hybrid growth financing for companies. Himal is the GP at White Star Growth Capital, investing out of Fund One. Mainly into European technology-enabled companies. If you're listening in and you love our show, you know what to do: drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at EU
1: Tear
0: down this wall. It's more than just an alliance this, this is a union of values.
2: United and determined, we can serve as a model for other
0: regions of the world. The nature of a problem problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings. New, new beginnings. Let's start acting. Acting, 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 acting. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Zero 100 Conferences, which organises networking events connecting LPs and GPs in private equity and venture capital firms across Europe. Their upcoming event, the Zero 100
2: Conference DAG, will take place on February the 28th to the 29th, 2024 at the Hotel Savoy in Vienna. Attendees will include major LPs and GPs like Atomico, AXA Venture Partners, Early Bird, Urs Group, Dawn Capital, Unica and many other LPs and GPs. Save the date, February the 28th to the 29th, 2024 at Hotel Savoy in.
0: Join us in Vienna. In a world where podcasts outnumber humans, we try at EUVC to be mildly more interesting. Tune in at EU.VC to watch this episode instead of just listening. Wow. EU.VC, yeah. where the extraordinary is just another Monday.
1: This show is not investment advice and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured.
0: Hello. before we start with our normal script, I think this topic grants a short intro. So give us a very, very brief introduction on what debt-led hybrid growth financing for companies actually means.
2: It's, uh, it's one of those wonderful mouth... It's a mouthful. It's <laughs> a mouthful. We, we prefer, prefer just to call it structured growth capital. That's, uh, that, that tends to be the easiest thing, but, uh, yeah, but it's very, very quickly. The, the idea behind what we try and solve is we try to bridge the gap between equity financing on one side to debt financing on the other side. I think as uh, the European environment for companies in particular who are raising funds has become uh, different and they've become more sophisticated, Europe doesn't have as many options. As perhaps our peers in the U.S. who where, where this exists, where we basically start off with a, with a loan into a company, we lend to them. Uh, and then fundamentally, we have the ability to invest in that company by way of equity or some sort of junior loan note, in which they can turbocharge their growth and continue their growth uh, trajectory to to become hopefully a European champion. So, in a nutshell, we combine the best of debt and the best of equity into one product uh, for companies to, to to grow.
1: A vanilla chocolate ice cream, I guess. out. <laughs> let's get to our usual script and uh, and ask you to tell us a bit about your journey into venture.
2: I will also keep this very, very short as well. Um, like most things, it was a bit of an accident. Um, so uh, I started off as an engineer um, and uh, fell into banking in 2007, seven eight because um, all my friends were getting these internships in banks. I thought it was cool. I thought, why not? And so by accident, I ended up in uh, Leverage Finance and TMT um, and found out I really liked it and really funding tech and telco companies when it was sort of 2011, 2012, where some early stage companies that were sort of nascent in Europe were, were growing with equity capital. They'd raised equity capital through VCs in the US, some very, very early stage companies in, in, in Europe. And fundamentally, they came over to us and said, Hey, could we have some debt? And we said, Sure, what's your what's your bit data? They said, Well, we're losing 10 million. We said, Go away. That's kind of how this sort of journey started. It got us thinking about, well, at the bank, how do we try to lend to businesses, especially in the technology space, who are not going to grow for profit going forward? Growth is the main metric versus profitability. Fortunately, I was part of a, the founding team at, at Barclays that started the uh, the venture debt program many, many years ago, since 2012 or so. Um, and we were perhaps one of the first few pioneers amongst other funds that have been around for a while lending to European uh, companies uh, in, in this way. The landscape changed massively, um, I then moved on to work on the internet for a few months to, to work for Global Growth Capital, found myself in, uh, in, in in the tech shop there. Great place to learn, uh, and great place to learn a lot of things, uh, but equally then moved down to a, a, another venture lender, traditional venture finance, um, and uh, helped lead their sort of charge and origination in Europe, and some in Southeast Asia. So did that for a while, but again, you looked at the ecosystem and you said, well, hang on a minute. venture lending hasn't really changed. It hasn't changed since its inception way back when, for the last 20 years or so. And there's got to be a better way of doing this. And, and what we learned, noticed is the, the VC community has sort of evolved using the sophistication from the private equity industry, but the debt industry hadn't quite evolved and become more sophisticated by using some of the learnings of its leveraged finance, sort of big brothers and sisters. So what we decided to do was, we had a view of this debt-led hybrid financing. And we said, well, why don't we take some of the learnings that we've had in our previous lives, especially in leverage finance, and start to apply some of the flexible slash perhaps slightly more grown-up ways of financing businesses in our space to meet the current need that they have. So that's when we left and we, we joined White Star Capital, who um, I can go into a bit more, but, but uh, yeah, we, we, our interests aligned.
0: Could I, could I ask you to, you know, when you started talking about your journey uh, into this beautiful world, if I if I got the dates correctly, in 07-08, you started in leverage finance, right? Yeah, that okay. was an interesting. Exactly. <laughs> can you share? Can you share like uh, your reflections um, of that time? Maybe some core learnings, and and obviously, it's interesting to understand how that informs you as an investor
2: today. Yeah. Look, I mean. I mean, it was it was a very 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 interesting time, and, and I have to admit, I was very very junior <laughs> coming in from an engineering background, not having a clue about what the hell was going on, and seeing everyone getting fired. So it was um it was a very very strange time where most of the work that was being done was was actually restructuring. So a, a lot of work at the time was you know I, I didn't know it then, but I was living through one of the greatest recessionary periods that we we ever had. But I think in those sorts of situations, that's when you really learn how to do do what we do, um, understanding businesses inside out, understanding how to you know, effectively make wrongs right, if you like, um, and, and restructure things to make sure that from a lender's perspective, you make sure you get your investment money back. But equally, helping those businesses that are really on some sort of trajectory uh, grow even better. So we found that in that 08 period, uh, 08 to 10 there's a lot of money to be made um, not just for investors but also for founders companies and if you look at some of the best companies that we have today the justines the zooplas the Mindcasts, etc that were the first wave of companies that that were born in that recessionary environment they went on to become the unicorns and um, and, and do very well so discipline understanding how to do a lot with little and uh and, and really making sure that you you drove growth very well which, uh, was uh was a big learning in that, in that
1: period i'd love to ask you because you hear a lot, as is because I'm not in private credit, right? You hear a lot from the VC ecosystem about, well, LPs are looking for private credit opportunities right now. Could you share us a bit about, you know, you're out there on the fundraising trail. Are you really welcome with open arms everywhere?
2: Yeah. Across 2023, Andres, the, the interesting concept was everyone was telling me this was the golden age for private credit. And I think every single conference or anything I went to, the first opening was, this is the golden age for private credit. And I was thinking, great, but yeah, private credit issuance is, uh, is not as high as previous years. <laughs> so if it's a golden age of private credit, get, get lending. I think, look, you know, it's, it, it, it's one of those things where yes, it is a great time for private. I think we're going back to an environment where we were pre sort of seven, eight, where I think the credit quality is now in focus for people. Businesses can raise debt financing, but there is now a flight to quality of company. Ultimately, people are looking at the best companies to lend to. And fundamentally, I think risk reward pricing has come back to where we perhaps were a while ago. I think things are going to be very different with regards to how we go forward because we've had 10 to 15 years of, of, of monetary stimulus through central banks, where it's made credit very, very cheap to come by. Having said that, you know, 2023 has been a bit of a shift in mindset where I think people are seeing interest rates be going to be held where they sort of are, if not come down a little bit, but never going back to sort of zero or negative, or at least until the next crisis, should we say. And I think people now sort of looking at You know the readjustment in VC and in PE on the equity side, and saying, "Hang on a minute, we need to perhaps diversify where we're lending, or say where we're investing." Should we say? Because lots of people who have pigeonholed themselves into just PE and VC have sort of had a bit of a a rough ride over the last 12 to 18 months. So the attitude is certainly changing. It is still exceptionally tough um, to 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 fundraise. um, I have to say, but. I don't think it's going to get any more difficult I think you know, there are people that are very receptive and 2024 I think the first half will be pivotal to, to how we how, how well private credit raising goes
1: what are the questions when considering the market that LPs are asking
2: sure I think the, I think the, the biggest question I always get is well look you know, <laughs> how long are rates going to be where they're going to be and how long are you going to continue to be able to price um, loans where you're pricing them and I think depending, yeah, you know, that's very, very sector and sort of asset class dependent. I, I think the the interest rate hike has been quite prevalent in the traditional private debt leveraged finance markets, where you've got a clip of say, I don't know, two, three hundred basis points over floating rates. But when the floating rate has gone up by I don't know, three, four hundred percent. It's a big, big move versus in the growth markets where actually risk, the risk of taking your pricing high anyway. So someone paying 10, 11% versus paying 13, 14% with the floating rate included isn't as much of a hit on the cash flow of those companies as a, as a sort of traditional leveraged finance business would, would face. And, and that's what you're seeing. I think there's, um, that's one of the questions you always get asked, but also it's interesting. That not a lot of people, not a lot of LPs really truly understand the growth debt markets in our sector. They understand average finance for sure. They understand public credit, public credit or publicly traded credit. But unfortunately, it's, it's, we've been on a massive learning curve or educational curve of, of talking to LPs about how credit works in our environment.
1: What is the parallel to valuations having been slashed 50%, 80%? in equity markets, in venture debt? Because, you know, is that you're going from 3% to 10% in, in, in interest rate? Or, or how does it even, how, what are the dials that you're moving?
2: They're sort of related, but they're not, I don't think they are uh, okay. truly related in earnest. And, and, and here's the reason. I think equity valuations coming down in, in, in sort of venture backed businesses is, is almost a separate issue. I think you have a lot of cheap money you have a lot of, a lot of funds who are you know, pricing the next best thing at 20, 30, 40 times our hour in some cases we've seen when you know I think perhaps some have lost a little bit of discipline on, on how to price some of these uh, these businesses. Does that really have a direct correlation on debt pricing? Not really. I think the the interest rate environment probably has more of a, a correlation on, on, on debt pricing versus the valuation drop-off. I think for companies like us who are always looking to lend and invest in the best tech-enabled businesses, we're looking at quality full stop. Um, if the business is worthy, that is what we're going lend to lend to, and this is the price it's going to be. And fundamentally, what you've seen in the last couple of um, sort of 12 to 18 months is not been an increase in pricing per se from us. We're pricing at sort of you know, high, low teens. But it's, it's when you add on the fact that loans are over floating rates. That's the movement. And that, that's, that's been the key, the key driver between that. I don't think it's really linked to the valuations. Fundamentally, valuations have dropped off. And because you know, we have seen businesses, a lot of businesses raise at low rounds and or flat rounds, You know, we still look at the fundamental underlying quality of these businesses and whether they're lendable or not, or worthy, should I say.
1: And how do you think about, we've been in SVZ's repricing portfolios and that has led to significant markdowns. What is the parallel in a fund like yours, and has the issue of having been a bit too frisky with putting money into very uh, uh, starry-eyed projects, been the same in 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 credit as it has been in in in
2: VC. In credit, you are valuing put on two different basis. You're, you're valuing your loans, which are pretty steady state. It's very easy to see interest rate fees, etc. The component at risk, or should we say at, if that's the most volatile in that phase is your warrants. So at one point you strike a warrant at X and fundamentally you can, you can sort of theoretically produce what your value of the warrant is. And as that valuation goes up or down, that's what you get. But because the warrant typically is not a huge part of the return for a traditional debt fund, it's not it doesn't really drive the portfolio up or down too much unless you have an absolutely massive war uh, position. And, and then it's, it's, your portfolio. In some cases that's happened. The where so it's where you're ultimately getting the difference in, in the VC market is, is, yeah, it's, it's, we've been talking about TBPI for, for ages on the, on the VC side, I think that's been the, the flavor of the month for many. Uh, and DPI actually so returning cash back to investors has been a bigger, um, <laughs> a bigger, bigger topic. But I think the the difference in value in portfolios, really, from a private credit standpoint, is is very different, and that's what I think investors also should understand. Where it doesn't really matter whether the valuations of these companies go up or down. The debt is priced at whatever it is. It's fixed. It's contractual, and provided the company continues to grow and, and has the cash sure to service your debt, well, the valuation of that debt is is is, is what it is. It's, it's 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 there. It can be calculated quite easily. So less volatile, but Again, it's risk-reward, right? So this is where the difference comes between VC and brand credit.
1: And let's talk then uh, uh, risk-reward. What is juxtaposing, because you know VC very well, what is the IR expectations for a fund like yours versus a VC fund?
2: I I think first, perhaps to to introduce that, I think it's worth talking about sort of. Where we sit, and we always look at this in sort of three circles. We look, we look at the sort of the equity market where it's sort of higher risk, but higher reward, right? You're, you're investing money in an early stage with the hope that at some point you build a business so high that your multiple is 10x per every deal, etc. And, and and you sell it or IPO in, in, in eight to 10 years' time. Fantastic. On the other hand, traditional private credit doesn't rely upon that. It's, it's quicker money, but you're taking a senior secure position in the business. And fundamentally getting a contractual return repaid over three to four years, right? That's and your loan gets repaid, your cash comes back quicker. So your your perceived risk is is lower technically and therefore less volatile because on the extra side you have winners and losers. On this side you have a steady state of people returning your capital. What we think is when you are on the debt side and you have that lovely sort of less volatile, nice, clean cash generative uh, business model where your money's coming back with interest every month or every quarter, what we have access to is data. (laughs) And that that data is very, very interesting because not only do you have data, but you've worked with the management teams, you've worked with the investors for such a long time. You can tell which business models are going to be successful, which ones aren't, and you really can see it. You can see it very, very early on. And fundamentally, what we do, which is slightly different to private credit, but it's not the VC world is we take that data. We understand that we look at the qualitative stuff by working with the founders and then making selective equity investments on top of that and meaningful equity investments on top. And thereby you blend the best of two. So on the, on one side, you're probably looking at sort of around that 12 to 15% sort of net on the debt side, uh, IRR just on the debt and the warrants, et cetera. On the equity side, hopefully you're, you're hitting 25, 30% plus IRR. And we're sort of saying, well, okay, look, 20% plus IRR for us, a strategy combined, combining the debt and the equity. That's pretty good. So, uh, in, and we should sort of think of ourselves as a medium term
1: strategy in that sense. Do you consider yourself a VC or a banker?
2: <laughs> Neither. We consider ourselves a growth capital shop. Uh that was the cop out. No, we're uh, sorry, so no, I'm certainly not a bank. Um I've been there. Don't get wrong, love the banks. Uh been there before, but uh, you know, the 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 bank is a, is a is an interesting place. Um but uh you know I, I think genuinely I think we we have a slightly different mindset to VC, and we have a slightly different, we have a very different mindset to a bank. So, um, I would say we take more of a PE lens, a private equity approach, um, a little bit more calculated. We're not after 10, 15, 20x on the equity, etc. We're slightly different, but uh, that's the closest I'd, I'd align myself to on that side.
0: I was wondering, I'd love to hear you expand on something you know most of our guests are early stage vcs right so you your own portfolio is designed for write off for failure right it's part it's part of it it's it, it's from the get-go you know that's going to happen when we're talking about a hybrid approach like yours where you do that first right is there such thing as a write-off in the designing of your model and what what does what's the comparable actually because it's not technically speaking a write-off right
2: i, I think yeah look this is the world of investing, you're going to have write-offs. Um, whatever you're doing, whether it's debt, equity, hybrids, Bitcoin, whatever, whatever it is you're doing, you're going to have some form of a write-off somewhere. I think that the, the difference in both, if I look at the early stage equity, where, you, as you said, you're expecting most of them to be written off, but you're, those golden numbers are going to be great and really return 10 times your fund. The difference here is because the standard deviation of pricing, but also standard deviation of sort of, how much risk we're taking is pretty narrow. You know, the loans start to get repaid. You're in for a shorter time. The model is built with less defaults in mind or lower defaults in mind. Don't get me wrong. Defaults happen, right? But it's how you work your way through the default and how you get the most back out of that default situation which is what you know investors sort of back us to do um, in the good times it's all great and you're wrong but uh in, in the bad times it's you know how can you recoup your money uh, when something's going a bit sideways so look default's going to happen um, but you know if you have the amount of defaults in depth or credit that fund should I say as you're going to have an early stage fund then that credit stage fund is wiped
1: out
2: <laughs> boy <laughs> can't afford as many
1: I imagine that very often you come into the picture actually not as much from the founders reaching out but actually from other VCs that know you and trust you and like the way you work. Could you share with us a bit about how that's different from normal VC? And I ask this question to our audience so that they know because we've done a session before where we where we spoke about uh, about um uh, revenue-based financing. We've spoken earlier, also to 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 more traditional debt uh, uh, um, providers, where it's very apparent that that it really matters to a VC who they get on as the the credit supplier.
2: But it's interesting. I mean, I think capital like ours, historically, we've had a mixture of sort of the investor, or are you the sponsor, the VC, reaching out but also CEOs reaching out directly to us, or CFOs, or chairmen and Women, etc. I would say it's been a pretty even split, given that I'm sort of starting to get gray hair and some of it's starting to fall out. I'm, I'm not as bad just yet as you've addressed, but um, it's, it's getting there. Um, the, the fact that we've been around for a bit of time where we've backed founders who have exited and are now coming back to the table, you know that sort of recycling of that ecosystem, to, for lack of a better word, is, is what is actually driving sort of deal flow for the hybrid capital right now. It's, it's people that are the CEO to CEO or the CFO to CFO or so forth is, is actually where we get perhaps half of, half of the, the inbound from. But again, there's no, okay, just like every other early stage VC or even VCs in general, there's no shying away from grinding out uh your own work and, and trying to follow markets that you're interested in and sectors that you're interested in and try to actively reach out to people yourself. So I think it's com- mainly it's 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 VCs that come to us, typically at a series B and beyond level, that's sort of where we get involved. That's not always cast iron. It just so happens to be companies have revenue by that point. They have established business models, they can service debt. That's that's the key parameter. But equally
1: it's um it's it's a bit of both. Okay, so now I want to go to our take a stand section, which is going to be a bit different. Take
0: a star.
1: I am listening these days to Einstein by Walter Isaacson. And Einstein is very famously quoted by, uh, by, by many for saying that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. That of course connects very well to what you started out explaining as your uh, uh, origin story of uh, White Star Capital, Growth Fund, whatever we called it, <laughs> sorry, sorry for not nailing the name Emma Tell me, what, what's your take on that quote? It's
2: it's a very very apt quote for, for, the, for the time that we live in. I think um, you know, venture debt has been traditionally a very good tool, but it's been pretty mono product. I mean, this is what you get. as soon as amortizing term loan. Um, the flexibility comes from an interest only period, but that's about it, right? So it's 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 priced in a particular way. You take the wires, lends behave in the same way, and here is the product, but. The funny thing is, and, and you know, you'll know some of this yourself, you'll probably have lots of founders on, on this show too, but founders want to raise for different things. <laughs> and you, know, you it's always square peg round the hole. They need different types of um, solutions in order to fulfill their financing requirements, right? And so having more and more and more venture debt shops doing the same thing over again and hoping that they can fundamentally find the flexibility to 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 meet the requirement that a founder has is, is is where that code fits. So we have to do something different. In order to try to keep European companies private for longer, which is, you know, I think there's, there's some stats out there that show European companies sell out much quicker to, to US peers simply because there is a lack of funding, even though a lot is being done by ELPs in this European market to try and bridge that gap. Backing the same old thing over and over again, so you've got to back something different. These sorts of products like we offer exist in the US and allow founders to be able to say, okay, let's take a piece of less to capital first, but from the same provider, let's turbocharge the growth before we raise the mammoth equity round by by, by getting some more equity or some sort of junior capital to the debt. So it's, it's that that we, you know, it, it's companies are seeking alternative ways of being financed in more sophisticated methods. The world in 2012 is very different. 12 years on, now in 2024, people understand that there are ways in which you can finance companies that uh, and, and solutions that uh, we now try to offer. But there's still, I mean, one last thing I'd say there is still a huge funding gap. There aren't that many uh, sort of alternative options out there at the moment. And I think that's where. You know, we as uh, the European sort of community need to improve.
0: I'd like to dive a bit deeper into the specifics of White Star Growth Capital. And Andreas, sure. that's the name.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> give, us,
0: give, us, give us a one-on-one of what, what you do over at White Star Growth Capital. And I think later on, we can, we can talk a bit more about you know what's the value for, for founders, for companies, for investors, LPs, how you collaborate with others, your edge, etc. But let's really start with the basics of, of what you do.
2: Look, I, th- I think most people will know White Star historically, I mean, you know, as, as, a, as f- first and foremost of VC. Um, that is what they've been that's what they're famous for that's what they're we're now close to uh, uh, some good news i think next week so i won't I won't ruin that just yet but uh you know we're we do very very well at that, at that stage in in venture capital and, and investing in early stage technology companies it's a global platform operating in north america europe southeast asia and now mean but equally, what White Star Growth Capital now fits into is adding the third leg, because it's it's you know, Whitestar rich in VC, but we have a digital asset you know, platform, and, and now we're where I guess the, the debt side of the business, but the, the hybrid debt side of the business. And what we what we continue to do is it's sort of like that step change. So I'll apart digital assets for the time being, but sort of the VC portion of our business comes in and invests in sort of late C mainly Series A. Follows money into series b whereas what we come in and do is perhaps start at series b look at things in a slightly different lens from a debt angle versus a direct investment angle to start with and we're basically backing the growth uh, the future growth of the company so once the company have got product market fit they've got proper revenue they've got kpis they can sort of deliver they've got a proper financial model they've got a big team etc etc a lot of the hard lifting has been done by these these early stage equity investors we come in later to really turbocharge that growth and we aid expansion. So that, that's fundamentally what we do and that's how we get involved. We come in with a debt check to begin with and then we track these businesses, we work with the businesses. In particular, we, we take board observer rights. And I think we're, the reason we do this is because we want to get involved. We want to be part of the table with the founders, with the, the, the investors. We want to try and bring a level of value add where historically i think lenders have perhaps not really done as much and and fundamentally saying well look we're part of this growth journey so that's what we do uh, at white star and the aim is to try and turn european and for us we operate in europe and Southeast asia but probably europe is to try and grow unicorns of this in this uh, in this market
0: i have two major questions here and, and the, the first one is when we when we look at the, the platform the global platform as you described why have a hybrid approach and not just you know uh white star would have uh, a more growth focused fund and then there would be a debt fund and completely separate completely independent different different things so why why have this kind of equity side that goes as you said series a mostly and then having this hybrid approach that's question one question two is you mentioned optionality so the way you do deals is you do debt first, and then you have an optionality to invest. So I'd love to hear you expand a bit about how does that how does that kind of happen? How is that decision making happening? But also, what's the deal like? Are you coming in there at a, at a three C? Are you coming in with special rights because you 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 were were a, a debt provider? I'd love to hear those two.
2: Taking the first one, it's easy. So it's first and foremost, it should be clear that, that you know our funds never cross invest. So if you know, we have. Specific uh, funds that uh, way star where uh, different LPs, different uh, investment committees, etc., different people running each fund. Hey, let's let's not be. Um, what's wrong? With it? Let's never write anything off. Right we may have different growth funds that just go into growth equity or whatever it is. The great thing about sort of joining a platform like this is it's it's ambitious. We're all very ambitious. We want to try and do more uh, somehow. And uh, you know, never never say never to anything. That said, uh, right now I think there are. It's, it, it, yeah, investing is investing. Whether it's debt or equity, it's investing. You're looking at this stage, you're looking at fundamental business uh, models, fundamental business practices, etc. But the reason for, I guess, having certain teams in separate areas is because of the asset class that we perhaps specialize in. We've done this through this a debt lens for many, many years. It's not just about being able to lend structure, it's about being able to restructure if things go a bit sort of AWIRE. But I think there are different requirements at every series that a company gets to. I think a Series A company requires different things for a Series B company, that requires different things for a Series C company. And fundamentally, we have a product set across White Star that matches that as the company grows. So down to your, 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 your second point around sort of, you know, I think you said optionality and how does that work? The key things I always tell my founders are, well, look, you're giving me a business model, right? And this is what you think your company's going to do, and I'm going to hold you to it. And you look at sort of the businesses where we have tried this approach in the past, and the businesses that go on to become unicorns where we've invested or done something slightly different is they've always met plan, if not exceeded it. They've always grown at a rate that's much faster than the plan that they've delivered. They've consistently hit numbers. They've got a great management team and they have just been relentless. And you can, you know, I would say about 5% to 10% of these companies actually achieve that. A lot of companies tend not to hit plan, but still do very well. But it, it's in that, it's in those nuggets of companies where we say, well, look, you know, guys, there's it's not to say that we would never, ever offer sort of the equity bolt on to other companies. It's just at the moment, our sort of mantra is where we've seen this work and do well for, for for investors, but also the companies themselves have been in situations where they have outperformed their plan and done a great job at that. So I think that's where the optionality lies. And when you can turbocharge that little bit of growth to give them six to nine months more using equity, you find that these companies reach sort of unicorn sales very quickly.
0: There's a lot of assumptions in this follow-up question, and you will correct me if they're wrong. <laughs> but oh, how, well. <laughs> I, um, you know, when 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 you when you exercise the option of of, of doing equity, I assume uh, the um, the debt is still in there. And so, question one is: How do you think about exposure to single asset? Right. So you have certain amount in debt, certain amount in equity. When when you exercise that optionality, how do you think about that? And obviously, I'm also thinking about you know. The multiple assets so you might have uh, a german tech success tech success another german one and then you have a, a south european one do you, do, you, do you have these considerations even though these are different types of of investments
2: yeah look i think from the, the first point about sort of your, the debt may already been in the, be in the company and and, and um, you're investing i think it's important that we we pigeonhole both products so the debt is that the debt carries on independently of the equity that, that's just how it is, right? And that's what we try to make sure we do. The debt we've agreed a contractual agreement. Sure, things change, things can be tweaked, etc. But at the same time, the debt is debt. And then we think about the equity in a way where we have multiple in our head. <laughs> it's not always right as to what we want to achieve through making an equity investment. And if we, you know, if we don't have conviction, even if the company's outperforming their plan like crazy, if we don't have conviction that we're going to hit that multiple, a little bit PE esque. Then we you know, we have to think about how we structure whatever follow-on capital we structure. It could be by more debt. Who knows, right? It's not to say that we won't lend more. But the fact is, you know, we think about products sort of independently to each other. The, the you know the premise of actually putting equity in is to actually align ourselves better with the founders and also the existing equity investors. So they don't have to put into their pocket until perhaps the next round, um, and it means more cash efficiency for them um, as well as us. With regards to sort of sectors and, and, and geographies, you know, again, we are sector agnostic, but it's got to be tech enabled. Of course, things go with the times. You know, yes, ARR and repeat revenue businesses are, are great right now, but you know, there wasn't, you actually see that the biggest exits come in. E-commerce and consumer-facing businesses, and of course, the biggest busts also come in that sector as well. <laughs> Having said that, I think you know we're open to whatever it is. It, it just has to a at the time of making our investment, just like any other VC. We've already got to be inside. We have you know we place more conviction on the founders delivering and what they've done in the past, so we can see sort of six and a half months of trading performance, and they've actually met their budgets. And if we believe, you know, at the point when we put in that debt, we've already made the thesis of which sectors, et cetera, we want to invest. In. And therefore, we are, if you like, that's already a given that we're going to put our money in. We don't, we don't worry about the sector because we already, we already like it before the initial tech debt even goes in. So I think that's how we think about it. It's not always right, but that's that's how it works.
0: So you mentioned something really interesting, which was you have a multiple in mind and you'll structure the deal in whatever way is needed to match those expectations. And as you said, that might include more debt. From um, a GPLP relationship here, what expectations uh, do you want your investors to have in terms of, you know, what's happening on that debt equity kind of balance in the portfolio?
2: It's probably important to say that, you know, from from, a, from an LP standpoint, the vast majority of what we'll do is debt. So it's debt-led. So you know, we, we look at it as saying the majority of what our capital deployment will be in some sort of credit. It will be that sort of 20, 30, Percent odd that will be held as equity, and the point there is that you know we we want to make sure that we are able to put our capital in, be useful to the companies, companies pay it back, and we return that capital to our investors so that they can go redeploy it or preferably put into a, a second fund for us. Um, and 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 fundamentally, they are able to get both sort of you know the income from the, the interest, but also the capital appreciation by by going into bonafide and vetted companies that we are already in that we have data driven sort of uh, sort of optionality on. So it's a little bit of mainly credit, but it's 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 that portion of equity that we're taking in and blending with with the credit that, that should give LP something slightly different to to consider.
0: On that note, and you know I'm coming with my bias, which is most of the investing that I slash we do is is in into funds, early stage VC funds, right? What's particularly interesting in the strategy like yours, I'm assuming, is obviously that it's, that it's a completely different risk profile, of course, but what's also very interesting is the l- liquidity of it. Could you expand a bit on that?
2: You hit nail on the head, right? I think um, as, as, as a credit-enabled fund, I should say, you know, our money goes into businesses by alone, and however we structure that, you know, it, it, the structuring is the key, by the way, and <laughs> how you structure and whatever you do. At some point... In three to four years, we're going to be repaid our money. And therefore, at that point, once our investment periods end, this is standard for most, most air funds. Once your investment period ends, you make a choice to return the capital to investors. And in some cases, you can recycle the capital into your existing portfolio companies. But on the whole, you're starting to give your money back alongside the interest to your, your investors. So rather than in a VCP a fund where you're waiting eight to 10 years for your money to be, you're you are restricted to a liquidity event of some sort. On our side, you're not restricted to any liquidity event because you know, most of our capital comes back through through, through cash flows of, of companies paying us back. So that's how it tends to work. And I think you know, the small portion of reserve for equity, well, that's just sort of once you've had your money back, hopefully you've made more than one times back just from the the debt component, and the, the rest of it is 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 your sort of I want to say lottery ticket. That's the wrong word, but um, for lack of a better word, it's your upside.
1: And that will show somewhat the dynamic of a VC firm operating at the Series B stage. So that makes, makes a ton of sense. Can I ask a, a slightly maybe weird question or at least a very different question? What is the talent like in this sector in Europe uh, or in this niche of investing in Europe? Because I, as an example, we have a lot of secondaries opportunity. But to be very frank, we don't have that many sophisticated secondary investors, And it's a skill set that, you know, many haven't had the chance to build in Europe for obvious reasons. So I'd love to, to understand that a bit better. And I imagine that it's primarily also found in the hubs like, like London.
2: Yeah. Look, I think the, the interesting aspect to this is, it goes back to sort of when I started my career, the amount you learn in a sort of recessionary environment is is massive, and you learn more in a recessionary environment and when things are not going very well. Than you learn in a time when things are going great. Right? I think there is a lot of talent out there. I, I think that historically we used to poach people from banks, etc., where they had the traditional bank uh, training to to, to lend and, and and understand the fundamentals, and then sort of applying those fundamentals in a slightly different way to what we what we do. slightly different now i think that you know we do still have that talent in the banks it still exists we went through a recent uh hiring spree and and we found it very very tough i think we're trying to find people who have got sort of three years qualifications of or three years experience i say of of, um lending and investing and if you look at look back at the three years it's a faux pas from us but if you look back at three years most people have been locked down for a year and a half and you can really see that not being able to go to the office and learn through your peers or just ask someone a question who's sitting opposite you is really taking its effect in terms of the quality of candidates we're now seeing in, in, in our specific sector especially from a technical perspective but they are out there and I you know Yes, they're probably located in, in some big firms in 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 big cities, London, Berlin, uh, Frankfurt, uh, Paris, somewhere. That said, um, you know it's 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 they are available. We just need to find them. We need to do a better job finding them. In terms of secondaries, just an interesting point on that. I think you know secondaries markets boom when when I think the the, the economy is tank, right? So when you see a situation like now, I don't think you've got. There are people who are perhaps my age or a bit older who have seen what you can do in the environment where things aren't going so well. And I think that the crop of people coming out now in this, in this environment now will probably have those learnings for the next big sort of trough of the cycle. But I still think they exist.
0: Now let's go to our shout out segment. I'd like to ask you to give a shout out to a co-investor, Angel, or LP for being awesome. And of course, do share the story behind that awesomeness if you can.
2: I think it's impossible for me to share out just one. Um, I think when, as, as something that i learned as a first-time fundraising money, um, it's, you know, our initial high net worth individuals who backed us right from the start, and also some of the early stage family offices that came into us. You know, we could not have got this off, off the ground without them, and I think, this is where, I th- again, you know, Europe seems to be a little bit behind the US, where in the US there are a lot of families, a lot of high net worths who are open to backing first-time funds, who are open to backing first-time strategies. And until you don't have an ecosystem with the likes of you know, the high net worths we have in our fund and the families that, are, that have really backed us, you- you're just not going to be able to launch different products, different funds, off the ground you'll continue to have more and more and more of the same and so the biggest shout out has got to go to them I, I, I can't name them individually simply because there's so many but equally we could not have done this without that i think that you know if there are family offices and, and, and i sort of listening to this, this this uh podcast i think it's um something that you should consider especially if you have the right managers at this stage it's the same thing when you're back at early stage of VC fund you're backing the manager with a track record versus to, you know anything else and the
1: idea i can tell you him uh on a good note that we do have quite a few family offices listening and i think the, the audience might might uh might enjoy this fun fact that i i know i did when i did some 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 mining because i was trying to i was looking at our audience data and then i and then i was saying who is it that we have as as subscribers and then and then i thought so how do i Find these. Then I just searched biggest LPs in Europe, and then I picked the list thirty LPs that are non of funds because you know I know that they're following right. And then I just went and searched the domain name of their of the, of those those firms or families or whatever, and I I had about fifty percent hit rate on that list of top thirty uh, VC LPs in Europe, and I didn't know them right. I had no idea what their names were because it's. Up for families that I don't even, you know, don't know shit about. So that was pretty interesting and, and a pretty cool, cool fun fact. And I've enjoyed saying it uh, quite a bit, right? And now I thought, well, let's share it here that that we talk about. So, do we have families listening in? And I, we do. And every one of you that are listening in uh, and supporting VCs and, and initiatives like like yours, ML, thank you so much. Uh, you're doing amazing work, and, and keep spread the love.
2: I 100% second that, and I think it's, you know, I, I think the, the, the call now has to go to sort of, it, the, the other bit where the US tends to somehow do this, allows uh, to just have a deeper market, a little bit more of a, perhaps a, a different risk appetite, is, is earlier stage institutional uh, and sovereign bonds whereby, you know, the family offices and the high net worths really get you off the ground, but to actually scale you and to to achieve our mission to keep european companies private for longer to help them build and hopefully become (laughs) unicorns of europe you need to have institutions and sovereigns who are willing to take a little bit more of that risk and come down and say hey look first one we'll do it let's go and actually we're talking to a few now who are who are really then and uh hopefully we can can share their names at some point but uh i I won't give them the shout out just yet uh when they sign i will but (laughs) just but before that i think it's 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 worth them it's worth saying that that's the next step that we need to to establish in europe uh, the institutional capital is coming as well
1: earlier Before we wrap up, we're looking at the calendar here. It says 3rd of January. And for many, that's the first working day of the year. For David and I, of course, it's the 3rd. So (laughs) tell me, Imel, (laughs) what is your outlook for 2024 in our sector? How
2: long have you got? This is probably a separate podcast for
1: uh, for the outlook. But look, just
2: very quickly, I I think that at the back end of 23, especially Q4, you started to see – and it always follows. The trough of the cycle and the economy hits about a year and a half later, that's when you start to see the corporate insolvency start to really hit, hit home. And I think that we're sort of we haven't seen the end of that yet. So I I suspect, uh, and sorry sound with the grim reaper, but I suspect that there'll be a little bit of a difficult start for, for, for 24. The good news is that you're seeing inflation in most developed economies coming down and, and it's come down quite significantly. Rates remain where they are. And I think that sort of come end of Q1, the US might start to reduce their rates. End the of Q2, Europe and the UK might also start to do that as well in terms of interest rates. But I think some companies will have failed by that point. But half two looks a lot more promising, um, certainly for sort of companies to go and raise capital again. Those who have sort of weathered the storm and, and have enough cash runway to get to sort of end of, uh, end of 24 are probably in a great position. Uh, to go and raise capital, whether it be equity or or debt, I think the equity markets will come back in a a, a lot better. But at the same time, I still think it's, you know, there are still, I don't think we're fully out of what we're out of just yet. And I think there is always sort of little hiccups that can come about. But fundamentally, I expect it's going to to be much better with interest rates coming down, lending becoming more reasonable. But I don't don't think we're ever going to get back to sort of 0% rates and and stuff. So I think we've now established a new sort of, Base for things like the cost of debt, for example, and, and, and that is where we'll go. So um, yeah, let's hope. Let's hope, and I hope that hybrid capital becomes more increasingly popular in Europe. I think it's uh, something that we we are very passionate about, and I think that uh, if it becomes half as popular as the US, then I think it will be a, a great addition for the European ecosystem.
0: EU let's go into the quickfire round, Hamal, where I'll ask you three quick answer questions. <laughs> And now the quick fire. What advice would you give your ten-year younger self?
2: Not to be in such a hurry. <laughs> I think, uh, I think the, ten- the ten-year self, and, and perhaps uh, to take take time to actually think about things. I think we, you know, I, I, we, we had a we had a professional coach come into White Star recently who said, you know, think more, talk less i think 10 years ago i should have perhaps taken that mantra of uh, think more talk less i i rather talk a lot and thought less um and you, and you sort of think about well you know, 10 years ago don't be such a jarring go with the flow learn as much as you can experience different different things because so I, I perhaps looking back in my career you know i, I did one thing i did leverage finance lending and in TMT. <laughs> that's what I've done all my life, and, and that's sort of where my career is bifurcated to. I wish I had done something slightly different as well, got a few different sort of uh, mm-hmm. tools in the uh, Swiss Army knife, <laughs> and, and done something slightly different as well. But at the same time, I'm happy where I am, but that's probably what I tell my 10 year young self to do.
0: What are your top tips for emerging and given your profile, let's call them fund managers across Europe or fundraising?
2: Something that was very, very difficult for me, I think, uh, leave your ego at the door and walk through that door and literally sort of, you know, you're starting from a place where 99.9% of people say no. The question is, on the no scale, just how much of a no is it? Is it that no, never come back? Or is it a no, I like it, but we're not going to come back just yet? It, it's to have that thick skin. And if you don't have it, really grow it because you're going to be told no over and over and over again. But then you have to just keep on going at it. And eventually, those no's become yeses. And, and uh, yeah, then, then somehow you get a, you get a first close in your front. So that's how happened. <laughs>
0: What's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been? And our question is normally venture, let's call it more the investment uh, landscape.
2: Whether it's counterinsured or not, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I think, and you can tell me otherwise. But you know, as I've mentioned it before. I think this this concept of pricing risk. Pricing risk is you people say to me, "You think about the fundamentals, you think about the business model," and they all go out the window when the market is like sexy. <laughs> it's uh, when the market is great, the fundamentals seem to go out the window, and you sort of think, minute, hey, how on earth did someone price where they priced, and and how on earth did they value the business with the value?" Fundamentally, I think yeah, you know the my principle always sticks to look at the business fundamentals and basics irrespective of whether the market's good or bad and that way you won't have a situation like today where you know, things have been rewritten, revalued and if you have a portfolio right now, it's, it's a difficult one to work through.
1: Before we wrap everything up here and let you go, I want to ask you to share with us an uncommon belief that you hold that most people around you do not hear. I knew you were going to ask something like this. I think, uh, um, uh,
2: look, uh, w- without without having the crystal ball now, I haven't spoken to many people about this just yet, so I don't know. It may be a widely held belief. It may not be. But but I think you know, with the with the rise of things like generative AI and how developed software is in today's environment, I think... Over the last twenty years, I'd say hardware's been left behind. My personal belief is that we're probably, you know, everyone goes to say, "Hey, we don't invest in hardware." <laughs> there are a few who invest in hardware, but I think where we're starting to get onto, or where the world we're coming into is, where we're going to need to start building things again that can complement and run the advanced software that we have. And not, I'm not saying computers; I'm saying machines, um, something to deal with the level of computing power we have from a software perspective so i think you know in the 70s 80s and pretty early 90s we had a massive boom in hardware if you look at japan I mean, they they made a whole economy of it and then we seem to have forgotten about it in the 2000s i think where we are going now from 24 onwards is is a combination of hardware and software and maybe that's where the big gains will be who knows has, has anyone said that before i'd be interested to know to know is is it a controversial belief or is it is it not
1: We've had it once before from obviously a robotics investor. <laughs> it's talking your own book to say that, um, but but it makes a ton of sense, right? I, I I'm seeing it as well. I think everyone everyone is right. So yeah, yeah. But it is it is hugely interesting. Blue collar workers. We've just started to
2: come across a lot of businesses that are sort of integrating a bit of both. There are geographic regions. They are doing this very, very well. Um, I'd say sort of Central and, and Eastern Europe, uh, uh, there's, there's a lot of companies that are doing both software and hardware. Again, an observation, but I think it's interesting. So let's see what let's see what we get with it.
1: It's interesting because you see, kind of see, like on the one hand, that you can argue that being a carpenter or something like that will be even better in the future uh, because you know every every all the white collar Work is going to be dealt with very easily and very quickly. We've seen that firsthand here at the UVC. Whereas, if you need to do something under the sink in someone's house, it's gonna take a while before that <laughs> that is being done by. by uh, <laughs> um, but then, on the other hand, you've got anything that looks like it's all, or industrialized, and and there it's just gonna be automated so swiftly. Uh, so incredibly interesting. I'm going to a conference in Denmark uh, in. March, beginning of March, only on robotics, uh, robotics in in VC, which, you know, it it always blows my mind to see what's coming next. So very interesting. All right. Hamel, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone listening in, especially the family offices who are backing the likes of Hamel. Thank you so much for tuning in. Everyone else, because you are the masses, do drop us a review. (laughs) We want those big numbers of you saying that anything do follow the pod and subscribe at UWC thank you thanks Andreas thanks David this
0: down, down, down. tear down this wall it's more than just an ally this, this is a union of values, 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 values united and determined we can serve as a model for other regions of the world the nature of a problem, problem requires a European response, response. Europe is a story of new
2: beginnings, new, new beginnings.
0: Let's start acting.